The talk tonight is on the seven factors of enlightenment. There's a story that you may be familiar with because it became a little popular after 9-11 of the two wolves, which has been attributed to the Cherokee nation, although I'm not quite sure of the exact source. And the story goes that a young boy was at school and one of his friends did something to him that was unkind and unfair. And he came home quite stirred up and wondering how he should get back to the person or if he should get back or try to work it out in friendship. And he came to his grandfather and explained the situation and asked the grandfather, you know, what do you think and what should I do? And the grandfather said, oh, I know what you're feeling exactly. This has happened to me many times. He said, it is as though there are two wolves inside me. One is very angry and inclines easily to hatred and looks to have vengeance. The other wolf is kind and patient and wants to live in harmony with everyone. These two struggle inside me many times and both try to dominate my spirit. And the boy asks, Grandfather, which one will win? And the grandfather replies, the one that I feed. I like this story because of its sort of uh, simple pointing to an important truth and also because it really echoes the Buddha's language in working with our minds. The Buddha talked often about our meditation practice being directed towards starving the hindrances and feeding the factors of enlightenment. And we start to understand that through the tools we acquire mindfulness and loving kindness and wisdom, we gain the capacity to shape our own minds in the direction that we choose. This is an amazing thing. I never imagined when I was young that this was possible, that I could create my mind in the direction that I wanted it to go in. But there are specific practices in our tradition to shape it for wisdom, for loving kindness, for energy, for compassion, for freedom, all the beautiful qualities that we seek, we have tools to build the mind in that direction. We often don't know how far this development can go until we meet somebody who's really walked this path quite a long way. So I think about the uh, Indian teacher Deepama And if you haven't encountered her teaching, she's someone I really recommend to you. There's a whole book on her teachings written by a Sangha member, an IMS former staff person called Deepama. So Deepama was teaching the three-month course one year. She was staying in the house across the street, and one of the notable things was after she finished lunch, she would do walking meditation. So she was not like in a mode of you know, I'm retired because I'm all the way there. She was still a really ardent practitioner, but her being was so developed that uh, she was very inspiring. So one day in a, a question and answer period, one of the yogis asked her, what's in your mind? You know, wouldn't that be interesting to ask a really developing, what, what, what's in there? What's going on? And Deepama said, there are only three things in my mind. Peace, concentration, and loving-kindness. That's a well-shaped mind. You know, that's really beautiful, and that's the possibility of practice. We can shape our mind in that direction, and it's just a question of doing the work. So when we think about um, the lists of uh, the Buddha, many lists describing difficult factors of mind, many lists describing beautiful factors of mind, For us as meditators, one of the most significant lists describing the difficulties is the list of the five hindrances. These are the qualities that the Buddha said obstruct wisdom and block the journey to awakening. But on the other side, in the beautiful qualities, I think equally important for a meditator is understanding these seven factors of enlightenment because they really become our great allies on this journey. 
And where the hindrances block the current to awakening, the seven factors move it forward. They are the, the forces that propel it. This is from the Buddha. Whoever has been liberated, is liberated, or will be liberated in the future, all will do so by surmounting the five hindrances that weaken wisdom, by firmly establishing their minds in the four foundations of mindfulness, and by correctly developing the seven factors of enlightenment. So this is a very clear statement of the path. This is our task. So these seven factors are, briefly, mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. I'll talk about them each in uh, some detail, but as an overview, they're called um, by this name because the Buddha said they lead to enlightenment, therefore they're called factors of enlightenment. That's pretty clear. Um, they're all described as maturing and release. Each of these factors, he described maturing and release or liberation, that's where they go. And he compared them using an image, a kind of house that you see in New England a lot. One of these houses with a peaked roof. Very common in this part of the country. And if you go into the attic, you see how it's constructed. There are these uh, beams or rafters that uh, all go up to the center and support the roof. Many of these things that run in parallel to support the roof. So he said, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too when a practitioner develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment, she slants, slopes, and inclines to Nibbana. So as we develop these qualities, they're aiming in just one direction. Like the rafters only point one way, these factors only point one way also. And at this point in the retreat, I am quite confident that all of you have had experiences of all these factors. You may not have noticed them when they went by. They may not have been of extremely long duration. But I want to talk about them tonight so that you can start to recognize them when they come. Because the first step in developing them is knowing when they're present knowing what helps them arise, knowing what sustains them, and knowing how to develop them further. So they lead in the direction of liberation, enlightenment, nibbana. They're also a description of the mind that is poised on the edge of enlightenment. So when we develop and collect these factors together in the right balance, that mind is right prepared for an opening into Nibbana or the unconditioned. We can't by effort make that opening happen. We can't effort a moment of enlightenment. But what we can do is prepare the mind with these factors so that it is right, you could say, on the threshold. So in a way, you could say these factors, when they're brought together and balanced, they describe an approximation in mundane terms of the tipping into enlightenment or Nibbana. So either way, they're kind of uh, our best attempt to reproduce or imitate this unconditioned element. They lead there, they approximate that state. The factors have been described by the Buddha as being sequential, that one leads to the next, leads to the next, and so on. So that's how I'm going to organize the talk tonight, and I hope to show how that development uh, happens naturally. But they, they also reinforce each other. So one that seems later down the list is also supportive of ones that come earlier. So it's not like you have to just develop this one and only then develop the second and only then the third. But they all can develop kind of together. But I think understanding the sequence is helpful because it shows how meditation itself uh, develops. The first factor in the list is mindfulness. 
It starts the ball rolling. That's why we put so much emphasis on it from the first day. And it also serves to keep the factors in balance. Now, what does that mean, keeping them in balance? So after mindfulness, the next three factors are called arousing factors. They tend to bring up energy. So these are the factors of investigation, energy, and rapture. The next three factors are pacifying factors. They lead to the development of calm. So these are calm, concentration, and equanimity. Balance means that the three arousing factors are equally matched by the pacifying factors. So you know all the instructions that we gave from day one about finding in your posture the balance of alertness and relaxation? It is really to find in the body the expression of these factors of enlightenment. So the posture itself leads to the balancing of these factors of energetic awakeness and calm relaxation. Because it's when these really come together that the mind is best poised for insight. So I'd like to talk about all the factors a little bit, uh, beginning with mindfulness. We've said a lot about mindfulness. I don't need to say very much more. But I want to say something that um, I hope might be helpful as you practice this quality and as you try to understand it. There's been a lot written about mindfulness and samasati and what it all means. And explanations can become very long to the point where I can't tell if I'm doing it right or not after I've read somebody else's definition. So I want to give you a really simple definition. Mindfulness is understanding what our experience is in this moment. And I honestly think that's enough. If you're in touch enough with the moment and you know what you're experiencing, kind of in the Buddha's vocabulary, mindfulness is happening. Some teachers will say, oh, it's only real mindfulness if there's no greed, aversion, or delusion. I mean, that's a very sweet form of mindfulness. That's a very developed form of mindfulness, but I don't think it's the only form of mindfulness. I think very simply, when you know what your experience is, mindfulness is being activated, and then it grows and becomes refined. And what I base that on is the way that the Satipatthana Sutta is expressed. Because in each of the sections on the four mindfulness, the word understands is used again and again and again in this kind of functional sense. So the Buddha will say something like, the meditator understands I'm breathing in. They understand I'm breathing out. They understand I'm experiencing a pleasant feeling. They understand the mind is affected by lust or the mind is unaffected by lust. In each case, the word that's used for understand is pajanati in Pali. So I take this as the functional definition of mindfulness, this understanding or knowing our experience. And pajanati is related um, linguistically to the term for clear, clear comprehension, sampajanya. And this has an element within it of uh, wisdom, a little bit of wisdom in the term sampajanya, clear comprehension. So this understanding our experience is enough to get the ball of meditation rolling. When we become mindful, we start to notice things, we see more about our direct experience, and then we become interested. We become curious. Why? Because there is this native intelligence that mindfulness wakes up. Mindfulness brings out this natural interest and wisdom or intelligence to relate to our experience. And that leads to the second factor, which is investigation. This is the quality in Pali known as Dhamma Vichaya. Andrea talked about this in some detail a week or so ago. Um, and I think we've described how this is not particularly a conceptual investigation, but it's really about drawing our attention close to the direct experience and you could say rubbing our attention against the phenomenon of our direct experience. So it's kind of like if you want to investigate or understand anything, 
that you really care about, you'll notice how the mind kind of calms down and draws close to that phenomenon. I was biking up Pleasant Street a couple of years ago, going north on this road. And you know, it's a very quiet country lane. There's really not a lot of traffic on it. That's why it's so good for biking. And I was about a mile or two from the center and all of a sudden out of the woods on the left side of the road, this black bear emerged. And just kind of ambling along, wasn't in any hurry. Fortunately, it was in front of me. Stopped the bike. The bear just sat down in the middle of the road. (laughs) It wasn't too worried about the traffic either. And it just sat there for a while on its haunches, kind of looking around. I didn't want to get too close, but I was very interested. Eventually, this uh, a car drove up, and the car was not going around because the bear was sitting right in the middle of the road. <laughs> but what was very interesting about it is we were all kind of transfixed by this experience of seeing the bear. My attention was not wandering very much. <laughs> I was really right there with that bear. So that's how it is when we're really uh, interested in something. The experience is just naturally there with it. This bear was really kind of a lazy creature and it had no real urge to move along. So finally I talked to the driver of the car and said, look, why don't you drive by it on one side? I don't think it's gonna bother you. And then we can ride by your other side while you're driving by the bear. So that's what we did. The car drove by it. We rode by on the other side. And just as we kind of passed it, as the car passed it, it said, okay, that's enough. And it ambled off into the yard of the farmhouse just across the street. (laughs) Somehow they had a bear in their yard. But we could could keep going. So this is how it is when, when we're with a natural phenomenon that we really want to learn about. The attention is right there with interest, with curiosity, and ready to learn from that experience. So this is the quality of investigation. There's a kind of natural warmth to that interest and attention, sometimes described uh, by the term wise attention. Uh, In Pali, the word is yoniso manasikara. And it's interesting the term yoni uh, is the term for womb. So you can kind of think of this as a womb-like attention that gathers around something that we care about in a warm and kind of embracing way. Now we can cultivate this factor of investigation as, as Andrea described in her talk and hopefully you've gotten a number of pointers from that. I'll just mention one other that I've found helpful. You know, one of the most difficult things when we're with a meditation focus is that the mind wants to wander off into the realm of conceptual thinking. And so the more interest we can find in the present, the more likely we are to stay connected. So after some time, the breath may become, you know, kind of feeling like a very ordinary object. Oh, I've seen a hundred breaths today. You know, what interest is there in seeing the hundred first? So one of the ways to keep interest in the experience of breathing is to ask for a little more noticing of detail. So one of the things that I sometimes like to do in practicing with the breath is seeing if I can find in each in-breath the beginning, middle, and end of breathing in. And if I can find in each out-breath the beginning, middle, and end of the out-breath. And then if there's a pause before the next in-breath, I look to uh, focus the attention on a touch point like contact of the seat with the cushion or the contact of the two lips uh, near the nose. So these seven points, beginning, middle, end, beginning, middle, end, touching, keep my mind often interested in the breath when just a simple in doesn't quite hold it. So this is just a way to investigate, brings us a little closer to the experience, brings up the quality of interest. This investigation factor is part of the wisdom uh, element of mind. And so this is in a way, uh, a very direct way to activate 
that faculty within us. Mindfulness brings in some of that intelligence. Investigation sharpens it. So when we get um, interested and curious and are looking closely at something, it tends to bring up our energy. You know, dullness is related to being disinterested and energy is related to being interested. And that leads us into the third factor, which is called energy. And the Pali term is virya. So it's interesting, the root of the word virya is vira, and the meaning in Pali is hero, or could be heroine. So it's interesting, this is the same root as the Latin word virile, or the English word virile from Latin. Same root. So there's a sense of a heroic quality to this energy. Sometimes translated as energy, but other translations of this term have been used. And I'm going to run through a few because taken all together, they really give more of the connotations of what's being pointed to here with virya. So it's also been translated as effort, energetic effort, strength, courage, ardor, and enthusiasm. So you can see it's not just raw energy, but it's energy that's directed, in this case, to the path. And so it has a, a strong quality of mind applying directly to the practice. So the Buddha put it this way, energy is aroused for the abandoning of unwholesome states and the development of wholesome states. One is strong, firm, not shirking from the responsibility of cultivating wholesome states. So you may recognize this as the definition of right effort, to abandon the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome, and this is where energy is directed. So there's, a, there's the connotation that this effort is a heroic kind of effort. The effort that all of you are engaged in has a quality of heroism about it. And it's a recognition that it's not an easy task to meet these conditioned patterns of reactivity and with the tools of the practice to transform them into wisdom and compassion. That's what we're doing moment after moment. And that's not an easy job. How do you transform a kilesa into wisdom, into love? It's not simple. This is why the energy has to be of a heroic quality. And this can only come from our own motivation and aspiration for, for freedom, for greater peace and understanding. Some teachers really emphasize the heroic quality of this effort. So I was sitting one three month course here, it was in 1987, and the teachers were in a very uh, heroic effort kind of mode. So in every interview, the way we would start off the interview, um, I was a yogi, I, I would relate how many hours I sat, how many hours I walked, and how many hours I slept. That was the start of every interview with my teachers. And from that, they got a sense of the kind of effort I was putting in. Their guideline was they wanted me to get down to four hours of sleep a night, every night. And I was used to cruising on retreats at about six hours of sleep. That felt comfortable to me. I'd never tried to get to four before, but that was the challenge. That's what my teachers wanted me to try to do. And so I had the time to do it. And so I worked at it. I came in the hall a lot of times sleepy and I couldn't hit four hours right off. I really had to work up to that. But over the, as the weeks went by, the sleepiness wore away, my sleep needs went down, and I eventually got to the point where I could cruise, took some effort, <laughs> but I could do the practice with four hours of sleep a night and not fall asleep very much during the day. And then that, that was a very fruitful period of practice. I learned a lot from doing that. It was very rigorous, it was very demanding, and it was very insightful. So I really appreciate 
the time that I did that. You know, I think about the way professional athletes train. I don't know if any of you have favorite sports, but um, I'm a big fan of tennis. And in the 90s, I really liked Andre Agassi, uh, who was one of the main uh, U.S. players at the time. Agassi was a fitness nut. He trained in Las Vegas under this very demanding teacher named Gil Reyes, who taught at UNL, University of uh, Nevada in Las Vegas. And Reyes would have Agassi run up and down the hills outside the city so hard that he would go until he threw up. And then Reyes would say, okay, that's good effort for today. Come back again tomorrow, we'll do it again. You talk to professional bike riders. I don't know if you ever look at the Tour de France. That is an amazing (laughs) feat of endurance. You know, these guys, and now there's a women's tour also, go for about 28 days, incredible effort every day. One, One pro bike rider said, every time I get on my bike for a race, I know I'm going to be facing eight hours of nonstop pain. That's how they push themselves. That's just for fame and fortune. (laughs) They're not even getting liberated (laughs) from doing that. So that's an encouragement for us, perhaps, to see what, you know, this quality of heroic effort might mean for us. Sometimes we'll feel inspired to do that. Not so helpful to do it from a sense of, I really ought to do it, or um, I'm not going to be a good yogi unless I do do it. But sometimes we get inspired to just extend a little bit, sit a little longer or sit a few uh, more times in the day or stay up a little later, get up a little earlier in the morning. And we find in stretching our capacity, we grow into that way of practicing. So this isn't right for everybody, but it's right for some people. And especially, uh, it may be right for some younger people. Because when you're young, it's really good to kind of stretch your wings and see where, see where your capacity is. It can be really helpful. So there's, that's one style of heroic effort. But there's another style where the virya expresses itself more as perseverance or you could say persistence. One of the greatest yogis in Tibet in their whole history is considered to be Milarepa, who was practicing in the 11th century. He was one of the lineage holders in the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism, considered to have made unbelievable meditative progress in one lifetime. So Milarepa left a number of disciples, one of whom very prominent in the history named Gampopa, So Gampopa had come to Milarepa uh, practicing out in the mountains. Milarepa is the one you see in Tibetan paintings who's just clad in uh, light white robes. If you see a picture on a Tibetan tanka and the yogi is just in these white robes, that's likely to be Milarepa. And he would practice in those thin white robes in the Himalayas in the middle of winter because he learned how to do tumo practice to generate the inner heat. And so he kept himself alive with the warmth of Tumo and then eating nettles out in the, out in the wilderness. So Milarepa had been teaching Gampopa for quite a while and now it was time for the disciple to go off, find his own cave and do his own practice. And they had come to the point where they needed to say goodbye. The student was leaving the master, quite sad at leaving, but it was a necessary step in his own development. So Gampopa had started off down the mountain track, leaving behind his teacher. And then Milarepa said, wait, wait, come back. And he called him back. He said, there's one more key instruction I need to give you. So Gampopa came up. Milarepa turned around with his back to Gampopa, flipped up the hem on his white robe, and leaned over to show him his butt. And this is where the teaching came. There is nothing more profound than meditating on this pith instruction. The qualities in my mind stream have arisen through my having meditated so persistently that my buttocks have become as hard as a camel's hoof. 
you must also give rise to such heartfelt perseverance and meditate. <laughs> so this was the pith instruction from the master to the student. And then he set Gampopa off to do his own practice. So this quality of perseverance or persistence is another way to express the energy of virya. It's just to keep going. Start and keep going. Saida Utejaniya puts it this way. Right effort means to keep reminding yourself to be aware. Right effort is persistent effort. It is not energy used to focus hard on something. It is effort simply directed at remaining aware. It is not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. For this you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. This is why we stress in our instructions the quality of relaxation. If you approach each moment from a relaxed frame of mind and you're present, the meditation will gain momentum and that persistence of momentum will develop this quality of virya. As the energy comes up, the mind becomes brighter. And as the mind becomes brighter in relating to our experience, we find there's a a quality that comes in of enjoyment. And this is pointed to by the next factor, which is called rapture. In Pali, this is piti. So piti is the factor of mind that takes a delight in the meditation. So this is not like a delight in a sense pleasure. There's a very different experience. It's not stoking sense desire, but it's a very refined enjoyment that's really an appreciation of the quality of the attention itself, the quality of mind. This is sometimes translated as joy, this factor, but please understand it's a meditative kind of joy. Could also be called joyful interest or a rapt attention. We're enjoying being with our direct experience, whatever its nature. It doesn't have to be sensually gratifying. We're enjoying the process of being present. So we start to find that the present moment is where we want to be. We're not forcing ourselves to let go of the thought stream and come here. The present is where we're finding our delight, our satisfaction. One teacher uh, who teaches concentration practice on the breath is Ajahn Brahm. He's a British monk who's living in Australia and teaches concentration practice a lot. And he said that uh, when you discover that the breath can seem beautiful to you, when you find the beautiful breath, then your practice picks up this quality of rapture, of delight. So this is interesting to explore. What would happen if you saw the breath as something beautiful? What if you discovered the beautiful breath that has a way of really bringing the attention in with an enjoyment of the process? So rapture is a mental factor, but it has physical, uh, a physical echo or accompaniment and in different degrees. Sometimes it feels like... Um, there's uh, goosebumps running down the arms. Sometimes it feels like there's a momentary rush of energy, kind of like a lightning bolt in the body. Sometimes there are passing waves of sensation that arise in the body. Sometimes there's a feeling of being uplifted. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Sometimes that when the quality of PT is strong, you almost feel like you could float off your cushion, something is holding you up. And then there's an all-pervading PT where it's felt throughout the body. Mostly this experience of PT is pleasant because it's coming out of a mind state of enjoyment. Sometimes it can, the physical manifestation can get so strong that it tips into the unpleasant. It feels a little too intense and it's no longer pleasurable. But in its initial state, it's felt as pleasurable and it tends to offset the hindrance of aversion. That pleasantness of the bodily energy offsets aversion. If it becomes stronger and starts to be felt as unpleasant, you just need to keep um, deepening 
the practice and that will smooth out in time. So as the pleasantness of PT grows and the enjoyment of the experience, we're not so inclined to send the mind out to past and future for gratification because the moment feels sufficient. So this leads into the next factor, which is calm. Also sometimes called tranquility. Uh, The Pali word is pasadi. So some of the other translations for this factor might be ease or serenity, tranquility or calm. Once I saw it translated as relaxation, which is nice to think about. This is the quality that lets us relax into the moment. This is the first of the pacifying factors. Rapture has the possibility of getting a little overexcited, amping up the energy too much. And so the calm starts to smooth that out and starts to balance out the arousing factors. When the mind and the body start to feel tranquil in meditation, it's often a new experience. We're not so familiar with this from our busy outside lives in the West. And so when it first arrives, we may not quite recognize it. The experience of calm is quite subtle and it's easy to overlook. But when it's pointed out, we can start to recognize it and then work with it. So one meditator, when having this experience for the first or second or so time, noted it as calm? Like, is that what this is about? Is this calm? So we get to know it a little bit. When we first find it, it might not feel that satisfying. Coming out of busy lives in the West, we are often uh, accustomed to intensity, to riding dramatic emotions up and dramatic emotions down. And we think that's what vitality is about. Oh, if I'm feeling really strongly, whether it's pleasure or pain, then meditation is really happening. The emotional intensity is really where it's at. And as calm starts to come in, we may feel a little disappointed. What happened to the intensity of meditation? And there can even come in a little bit of um, boredom. Well, not so interesting. I was looking for the ride that I got from the emotions. Well, what's, what's going on now? So it's an interesting point at which to investigate boredom because boredom is basically an aversion to neutrality. When things are high or when things are low, it's easy to stay engaged because it's kind of thrilling either way. When those go out, there's a kind of neutral quality to the mood and the mind goes, not so interesting. This is actually delusion coming in. So we start to notice it. Oh, this is calm. Not a bad state to be in. Calm is a really wholesome state. And so we start to appreciate, and one of the ways it can be appreciated is in calm, there's an absence of dukkha. So it may not be thrilling, but the absence of dukkha is very significant. In the early years of meditation practice, for many of us, retreats are characterized by a lot of turbulence. The hindrances are really the main fact of life, sometimes for years in practice. And when we hit this patch of calm, it's a significant uh, turning point. And it's kind of like we've crossed some stormy ocean. You know, it's got big winds and there are pirate ships and then there's the attack of the giant squid. (laughs) And all of a sudden, we've entered this big safe harbor where there's really not much happening. And then we can just sort of float on that for a while. Still being mindful, but there's a sense of being able to float instead of struggling. So Emily Dickinson really expressed this well in a poem called Wild Nights. And uh, for those of you who aren't native English speakers, there are a couple of odd words in this. Futile means useless, of no benefit. And chart is a synonym for a map in nautical nautical terms. So here's the poem from Emily Dickinson. Futile the winds to a heart in port. Done with a compass, done with the chart, 
rowing in Eden. I love this image. This calm space in meditation, it's like we're rowing in the Garden of Eden. Things are at peace, there's fulfillment and there's satisfaction. So what is happening in the experience of calm is the mind is discovering its own natural peace and ease. That natural peace is always there when we're not stirring it up. It is the basic nature of the mind and our kilesas continue to ruffle the waters. Now we're discovering that natural peace that is the mind's basic quality. There's a meditation instruction that Ajahn Amaro likes to use. He's an English monk who's now the abbot of Amravati Monastery in England. And at a certain point in the retreat, he likes to give this meditation instruction. It's all the meditation instruction you ever need. Rest in the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of mind and body. Then pay attention to whatever disturbs that. Very simple. Rest in peace or pay attention to the disturbance. That's enough. So resting in that peace when this comes is a piece of what we've been looking for all along. Peace, P-I-E-C-E, of what we've been looking for. There is a deep satisfaction in discovering this quality of calm. The access to that is really a doorway to contentment. The mind finds satisfaction in its own nature. And then many of the you know, desires for the future, many regrets about the past, which tend to stir this up, start to seem so irrelevant because the present takes on its own kind of fulfillment. So this leads to um, a shift in our approach to the path. It leads to a shift in our understanding. It's really one of the great blessings of the meditative journey. The Buddha said in the Dhammapada, this line I really love, peace is the highest happiness. And I wonder to what extent we actually believe that. Because peace is available in any moment when we don't stir it up. How often do we choose that? Or how often are we looking for some other kind of happiness that we think is going to be better. So often in the West, we believe that ecstasy (laughs) is the highest kind of happiness or some special bliss or some unitive experience is the highest kind of happiness. But the Buddha, who was not a dumb person, (laughs) said that peace is the highest happiness. I think this is really interesting to explore and I think it's a very profound comment on human psychology, that this most deeply is what we're seeking and that this is what brings the most fulfillment for us. Now, there are ways that this can be cultivated in meditation. Obviously, the development of mindfulness through the other factors is necessary, but there are ways that we can encourage it. And I'll just mention a simple one. This is from the Anapanasati Sutta where the instruction is, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation. I shall breathe in tranquilizing the mental formation. I shall breathe out tranquilizing the bodily formation. I shall breathe out tranquilizing the mental formation. So in this discourse, which is on the mindfulness of breathing, we can use the breath consciously to bring in this feeling of calm. You can play with this, see if it's accessible in this way. But basic instruction is when calm comes, notice it, be mindful of it, note it if you're doing that, and relax and trust in it. Settle into the calm and get to know it. It will continue to deepen. As the calm continues to deepen, it leads into the next factor, which is concentration. The Pali word is samadhi. And this is a state of mind where the calm has really become collected. The dispersion into past and future has fallen away. 
the mind is more united, unified in the present moment. And when it becomes unified in that way, it gathers back in all its natural power. We are constantly giving away the power of our mind through our distractedness. The quality of unification brings incredible power to the mind. The Buddha said the amount of power that comes from a concentrated mind is inconceivable. You can't understand what kind of power is there. For instance, it leads to uh, jhana states, these states of deep absorption, um, which are very purifying. It leads to psychic powers. Again, one of Deepama's skills, it, it, she had the ability to develop all the different psychic powers that are described in the old texts, described in the suttas. One of the things that her teacher commented on is that she could appear in a room for an interview without using the door. Wish I could do that. <laughs> so, um, Samadhi is usually translated by the term concentration. We'll continue to use that term because it's uh, so uh, widespread, but it's not a very good translation because the English word has associations that aren't in the Pali. So in English, when we say concentration, we usually mean an exclusive focus of attention. Like, I'm trying to concentrate on my homework. Don't distract me with that music. But in the Pali, Samadhi, the unification, is not about a narrow focus of attention. It is about the unification of the, let's say, the mind stuff, the mind as a whole. It can become unified through one focus, like the breath, but it can also become unified in a very expansive kind of awareness. As when you practice choiceless attention or when we did the big mind meditation the other day, as long as the mind is fully in the present moment, that unification is taking place. So the focus can be narrow, the focus can be broad, unification of mind can be as strong in either state. So I like to think of this as a wholeness of mind. It's when the mind becomes collected, unified, and whole. Wholehearted is another nice term for samadhi. This quality of concentration has two main benefits. The first is it brings a great sense of well-being. And you can notice this in your meditation. When the mind becomes steady in the present moment, how does that feel? It generally feels good, doesn't it? We're not being thrown into the hindrances right and left. So the absence of the hindrances has a pleasant um, is a pleasant experience. So there's a sense of well-being that comes from the power of concentration. The mind becomes stable and steady and strong. This is from the Dalai Lama. Inner peace is the key. If you have inner peace, the external problems do not affect your deep sense of peace and tranquility. Samadhi is what gives the mind its strength to remain in this inner peace. So this is important. The second big benefit is concentration is the foundation for wisdom. In one of the suttas, the Buddha says, the purpose and benefit of concentration is for wisdom. So it's the foundation for insight. And it's because when the mind is steady, it can see more clearly. It's kind of like, let's suppose you're on a merry-go-round and you're seated on one of the horses and you're going round and round and round, and then your friend comes up to the edge of the merry-go-round and holds up a newspaper. Here's today's news. But you're whizzing by so fast you can't read it. So the merry-go-round slows down, comes to a stop, you're in front of your friend, and now you can read the headlines. And what do the headlines say? The headlines say, everything changes. If you hold on, you suffer. Letting go leads to happiness. When the mind slows down, we see that clearly. And when the mind is concentrated, the insights go deep. It goes way under the intellect and it goes to a place where it feels very experiential. It goes into our bones because concentration brings depth. 
one of the powers of concentration as the mind gets strong, it's not so pushed around by the changing flow of events. It's not so pushed around by the pleasant and the unpleasant. And this leads into the seventh factor, which is called equanimity. The Pali term is upeka. And the basic definition is upeka is that state of mind that is not so moved by pleasure and pain. We still see pleasant and unpleasant. We still experience them, but our inner balance isn't pushed around by it. Sometimes in English, equanimity has this connotation of not feeling anything, not having any more emotions. You know, I sometimes, when I came into Buddhism, I thought the ideal was to be as unmoved as the stone statue of the Buddha was showing. But equanimity is not about losing our emotional response. We had a discussion group at the end of one three-month course, and I asked people to recount some of the most meaningful experiences that they had over the three-month. And one that a few people recounted was the experience of being able to be centered and steady with still a range of changing experience. And basically what they were describing was the quality of equanimity and the growth of equanimity. I think this is one of the key benefits of a long retreat that doesn't all go away when you go back into the world. This basic strength of mind will stay with you for for some time. So then I asked them, okay, in that place where you felt centered and unmoved, uh, were you not feeling anymore? Were your emotions shut down? And they said, not at all. They said there was more metta and compassion from that place than in their normal state of having the mind in turmoil. So equanimity opens the door really to the flowering of beautiful qualities like love and compassion as well as, as, well as peace. It's not a cold place. For this reason, Bhikkhu Analyo prefers to translate this not as equanimity, he likes the translation equipoise. So there's a sense that we're poised in the present moment and balanced, but not at all cut off or shut down. Equanimity is on a lot of the lists of beautiful qualities. It's included in the paramis. It's included in the brahmaviharas. It's in a description called the progress of insight described in the Vasudhimaga of how meditation unfolds up to enlightenment. And it's in the factors of enlightenment. And what's interesting about equanimity is it's always the last in those lists, which means that equanimity is kind of the culmination of meditative development. And I would say generally that the reason it occupies this place is that it is the closest worldly state to Nibbana. It is the worldly state of mind that most closely resembles the unconditioned or Nibbana. So it's very, very helpful to start to notice when these qualities are present in your meditation, to get familiar with each of them and to start to recognize they're all very wholesome, but the balance of them, like which ones are present and in what strengths, shape the mind in different directions. So you'll want to know which are strong and which are weak. One of the ways to approach this I always like to keep kind of an eye on, in my own practice, where I stand with mindfulness, energy, and concentration. So mindfulness is the originator. Energy stands in for the arousing factors. Concentration stands in for the calming factors. When these three are in balance and strong is when meditation feels bright, alert, and also somewhat peaceful. But the energy and concentration can go out of balance. So when energy is higher than concentration, we feel more restless and stirred up. When concentration is higher than energy, we may feel a little dull 
and tip into what's called sinking mind. It feels like sleepiness. It's not the same because it's coming from a wholesome place, but we feel dull and we can space out. So then we need to understand how each of these is generated and then apply that uh, generation to bring the factors back into balance. One really helpful way to work with these in practice, you know, the attitude question that we've often suggested, checking is there greed, is there aversion, is there delusion? Sometimes that will come up negative. Look for greed, no. Look for aversion, no. Look for delusion, no. So what do I do then? So then what can be really helpful is check which of the wholesome factors are present. And I find this list a really skillful one to check with. Okay, how's the mindfulness? How's the interest? How's the energy? Is there enjoyment? Do I feel peaceful? Is the mind strong? Is there unmovedness in relation to pleasure and pain? So you can start to identify from your own experience which of these are present and to what degree. As you get to know them better, you'll understand what leads to their arising and what leads to their sustaining. Because when all of these are brought together, then there is not only the foundation for insight and clear seeing, there's also the possibility of opening to a moment of enlightenment. We can't force or control that moment, but these factors being developed, this is what we can do. We can bring the mind into that balance from which the opening can take place. That's all we can do. The rest we leave to the Dharma. This is from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, these seven factors of enlightenment when developed and cultivated lead to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. They are noble and emancipating. They lead the one who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering. So sometimes we might wonder in this day and age, is the complete destruction of suffering still available to anyone on the planet today? Is this something that still happens for meditators in this day and age? So I'd like to read this little excerpt from a biography of a monk in Thailand named Lungpa Liam or Ajahn Liam. Ajahn Liam was a student of Ajahn Chah's and when Ajahn Chah died, he, when he was, knew he was ill, he appointed Ajahn Liam to take over the abbotship of Wat Bapong in Thailand. So he anointed him as his primary Dharma successor in Thailand. And this is an account of Lungpa Liam uh, of a part of his practice experience under Ajahn Chah dating back to 1969. This is quite a while in the past. In this rainy season, Lungpa Cha encouraged the monks to practice with special intensity. So I increased my effort. Keeping this teaching in my mind, I kept on meditating. Normally I would sit meditation until about 10 or 11 p.m. and then stop to have a rest. But now I continued sitting without moving or making the slightest change in posture. A feeling of peacefulness shot up and pervaded throughout the whole body as if something were taking hold over it. It felt cool, a coolness that suffused the whole body, an experience of the whole body becoming completely light and at ease. Cool, peaceful, quiet, and still. The only experience left was that of utter peace and stillness. The body felt tranquil, cool, and light. This experience continued on throughout that whole year, not just for a day or two. In fact, it has continued on unchanging for many years now, all from that one time. It feels like there are no proliferations of the mind anymore. All the suffering that arises with kilesas that had bothered me before, the kilesas concerning the other sex or all kinds of ambitions that I had before, I don't know where they all disappeared to. This is the kind of peace and tranquility that arose. There isn't anything to be concerned about 
as far as how various things exist. As concerns dukkha, I don't know what dukkha is like. Questioning myself about dukkha, there wasn't any. The experience of this feeling has lasted on continuously all the time since then. There has been no change at all, all the way up to the present day. This same state still lasts on, and it has been stable, continuous, and without changes. So let's just sit for a minute, please. As concerns dukkha, I don't know what dukkha is like. Questioning myself about dukkha, there wasn't any. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.